Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 98. Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with a harp, with a harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn. Shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, as Pastor Jean mentioned, we're doing a, a new sermon series called Carols. Uh, and so every week we're taking a look at one of the more popular Christmas carols to help us sort of uh, uh, break the, the level of surface thinking about Christmas and to dig deeper into uh, the real meaning of Christmas. And this week, we're going to be taking a look at uh, joy to the world. And so if you take a look with me at verse 1 of Psalm 98, verse 1 says, sing to the Lord a new song. Let's stop right there. Uh, this verse actually helps sets the, uh, the background and the backdrop for joy to the Lord. Uh, which was written uh, 300 years ago by an Englishman named Isaac Watts. And uh, Isaac Watts was uh, uh, famously uh, known as the father of hymns because he uh, wrote over 750 of them. Uh, but long before Isaac Watts became known as the father of hymns, he was just a little boy sitting at church, totally bored by the music, and perhaps even more tragic, he was completely uninspired by the lifeless and emotionless faces of the people singing the songs. And so his father issued him a challenge and basically said to him, well, if you hate the music so much, then you do something about it. And Isaac accepted the challenge, and he wrote 750 <laughs> of his own hymns, one of which we sing at our own church, When I Surveyed the Wondrous Cross. That was Isaac Watts. Uh, and he also wrote perhaps his most famous song, uh, Joy to the Lord, uh, Joy to the World, for the Lord has come. So I want to think about that uh, first line, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. And I want the big idea to be this. Why should the world be joyous that the Lord has come? Well, if you take a look at the song itself on page 11 of your bulletin, uh, I want to take a look at verse 3. In verse 3 of Joy to the World, it says, No more, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as, far as the curse is found. Uh, what this verse is saying is that the world that we live in is cursed. Uh, the way that Christians often talk about this cursed world is that the world that we live in is fallen. In other words, at one point it was up here, 
but now it has fallen to become down here so that the world that we live in is now broken. And whether you're religious or not religious here today, I think we can all agree at least on that, that the world that we live in is imperfect, it's fallen, uh, it's not what it could potentially be. Uh, if you take a look at uh, the, the first page of your bulletin, Stephen Fry is an uh, actor and comedian uh, in England and uh, an outspoken atheist. And in an interview um, called The Meaning of Life, um, this is how Fry uh, describes the world. And he was asked the question, you know, what would you say to God if you were ever able to meet him uh, at the pearly gates? And this is what Fry says. I'll say bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world which is so full of injustice and pain? Why did you do that to us? You could have easily made a creation in which that didn't exist. It is simply not acceptable. The Christian God who created this universe is quite clearly an utter maniac, totally selfish. We had to spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? Atheism is not just about, about believing that there is no God, but on, but on the assumption that there is one, what kind of God is he? It's perfectly apparent he is monstrous, utterly monstrous, and deserves no respect whatsoever. The moment you banish him, your life becomes simpler and more worth living, in my opinion. And to be very honest with you, um, I wouldn't disagree that much with what Stephen Fry says. You know, just yesterday morning, uh, Hannah and I were, were playing with our daughters and our youngest daughter, Hayden, uh, all of a sudden her lips turned blue and her skin became purple and she started shaking like she was having seizures just out of nowhere. And for a split second, for a split second, I actually thought we were gonna lose our daughter. And I was panicking, I didn't know what to do, I wasn't sure whether we should call 911 or not, and so we called up one of our, our pediatrician friends and she kind of walked us through what could potentially be happening and, and she's okay right now, thankfully. Um, but life is hard, life is harsh, uh, life is frustrating and no one gets through a broken world unbroken. And the reason for that is because the world is fallen. It's, it's broken, it's, it's cursed. And when I, when I hear the word curse, uh, it's hard for me not to think about fairy tales. And one of my favorite fairy tales is Beauty and the Beast. And in Beauty and the Beast, there is an enchantress. And the enchantress disguises herself as an old beggar seeking refuge from the storm uh, that's outside. And so she goes to this palace that happens to be having a ball. And she offers the host, a prince, a rose in exchange for some refuge. And the prince, prince denies her the refuge. And so the old beggar takes off her hood, reveals her true identity as an enchantress, and she casts a curse on the host and all the people in the castle. And she turns the prince into a beast and all of the castle inhabitants into household objects like clocks, teapots, candlesticks. 
And she says that when this rose, when the last petal of this rose falls off, the curse will be there forever. The only way of breaking this curse is if you learn to love someone else and someone else somehow falls in love with you. And she talks about how they are sort of losing their humanity. In fact, one of the candlesticks, uh, uh, Lumiere, uh, Lumiere says uh, in his French, thick French accent, which I'm not going to do, uh, he says, uh, with, with each passing day, we are losing our humanity because of the curse. And similarly, this is what the curse of sin has done to us. Because of our ego, our pride, our bitterness, our lust, our pettiness, with each passing day, we lose our humanity. We, 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 we become a shell of, of the way that God made us that we no longer reflect uh, his image uh, the, w- the way that we ought to. And not only are we cursed, but the world that we live in uh, is cursed as well, which, which again explains why none of us gets through a broken world uh, unbroken. You know, one of the reasons why uh, all of us experience disappointment uh, in our lives is because we expect more out of this world than it can actually deliver. We expect a world that is untouched by the curse of sin. But when we do that, we inevitably you know, get disappointed in life. This is also one of the reasons why in our uh, premarital classes, counseling classes, or our pre-engagement counseling classes, which we also do, we go through a book called What Did You Expect? Because the number one problematic mindset that newlyweds have when they enter into marriage is unrealistic expectations. And because newlyweds have unrealistic expectations of what marriage should be like, when they enter into marriage and they expect certain things but it doesn't happen, what happens? They're disappointed. You know, did I marry the wrong person, et cetera, et cetera. And so we go through a book called What Did You Expect to help prepare people of what they should expect when two sinners say I do. There's going to be conflict. It's going to be hard. And we try to prepare them mentally, emotionally, and spiritually for the journey that is marriage. And similarly, Genesis 3, what Genesis 3 is saying is this, what did you expect? It's trying to prepare us emotionally, mentally, spiritually for the life that we live in. Uh, You know, in in many ways, in a secular worldview, the pain and the hardship that we experience is completely natural. But from a Christian worldview, the, the, the toil, the, the pain, the suffering that we experience is unnatural. This is not the way that the world should be. But after Adam and Eve bite of the fruit, you can almost see the curse of sin spreading from the Garden of Eden to the rest of the world, infecting and casting a spell on the rest of the world. And so whenever we experience hardship, difficulties, traumas in life, it's because of the curse. And so the, you should never say this when you're counseling someone because it doesn't comfort them at all. But from a theological standpoint, not a theological standpoint, what did we expect? Of course it's going to be like this. Uh, someone in our community, a dear friend of, uh, of mine, uh, shared with me uh, an article, an interview uh, from The Cut. Um, and it's, it's one of those uh, advice columns like Dear Abby, except this one is called Ask Polly. And I wanted to read you this interview. Um, it's, it's not in your bulletin because it's way too long. Um, but I actually did want to read you the entire thing. And so it's going to be a challenge to 
our wandering and distracted minds. Um, but it will be well worth your listen. And uh, this, this one was called I'm Broke and Mostly Friendless and I've Wasted My Whole Life. And the person says, hi, Polly. I feel like a ghost. I'm a 35-year-old woman and I have nothing to show for it. My 20s and early 30s have been a twisting crisscross of moves all over the West Coast, a couple of brief stints abroad, multiple jobs in a mediocre role with no real upward track. I was also the poster child for serial monogamy. My most hopeful and longest relationship lasted three and a half years will be, and it ended two years ago. We moved to a new town, my fourth new city, created a home together, and then nosedived into a traumatic breakup that launched me to my fifth and current city and who knows what number job. For all these years of quick changes and rash decisions, which I once rationalized as adventurous, exploratory, and living an original life, I have nothing to show for it. I have no wealth, and I'm now saddled with enough debt from all of my moves, poor decisions, and lack of career drive that I may never be able to retire. I have no career milestones and don't care for my line of work all that much anyway, but now it's my lifeline, as I only have enough savings to buy a hotel room for two nights. I have no family nearby, no long-term relationship built on years of mutual growth and shared experiences, no children. While I make friends easily, I've left most of my friends behind in each city I've moved from while they've, conti while they've continued to grow deep roots, marriages, home ownership, career growth, community, family, and children. I have few close girlfriends for which I am grateful, but life keeps getting busier and our conversations are now months apart. Most of my nights are spent alone with my cat. I used to consider myself creative, a good writer, poetic, passionate, curious. Now after many years of demanding yet uninspiring jobs, multiple heartbreaks, move after move, financial woes, I quite frankly am exhausted. I can barely remember to buy dish soap let alone contemplate humanity or be inspired. Also, within the past year, I've had breast cancer, a breast cancer scare and required surgery on my uterus due to a fertility issue. On top of that, I'm 35, and every gyno and women's health website this side of the Mississippi is telling me my fertility is dropping faster than a piano falling out of the sky. Now I'm looking into freezing my eggs, adding to my never-ending financial burden in hopes of possibly making something of this haunted house and having a, some, a family someday with a no-named uh, no man. I'm trying, Polly. I am. I'm dating. I'm working out and working hard, listening to music I enjoy and loving my cat, calling my mom, yet I truly feel like a ghost. No one knows who I am or where I've been. I, have, I haven't kept a close friend, lover, or foe around long enough to give anyone a chance. What's the point? I don't care for my job, I'm not building toward anything, and I don't have the time or money to really invest in what I care about anyway at this point. On top of that, society is telling me my value as a woman is fading fast. My wrinkles require Botox, all the while my manager is asking for me to finish that report by Monday. But why bother? My apathy is coming out in weird ways. I'm drinking too much, and when I do see my friends on occasion, I end up getting drunk and angry or sad or both and pursuing them anyway. And with the men I date, I feel pressure to make something of the relationship too soon, move in, get married, and have kids in a couple of years. I used to think I was the one who had it all figured out, adventurous life in the city, traveling the world, making memories. Now I feel incredibly hollow and foolish. 
how can I make a future for myself that I can get excited about over all these wasted years? What reserves or identity can I draw upon from when I feel like I've accrued nothing up to this point with my life's choices? And she signs out with alias Haunted. You know, when I, uh, when I read this, I, I thought about two things. Number one, uh, everyone is going through something. Everyone is going through something. And number two, I couldn't help but think of the words of Philo when he said, be kind for everyone you meet is carrying a heavy burden. That is the people on your left, the people on your right, behind you and in front of you. Uh, every one of us is going through something and the reason for that is because we live in a broken world. So here's the question. Can we have joy? Can we actually have joy living in this cursed world when we ourselves are broken and fallen as well? Well, I mentioned this before, but last year there was a uh, class at Yale, which was the most popular class in Yale's history, and it was a class on happiness. And the class was actually called Psychology and the Good Life. One out of four students at Yale took this class. That is 1,200 students. So many people took this class that they had to change venue multiple times. And I think the fact that one out of four students at one of the most prestigious universities in the world, the fact that one out of four students took this class says at least two things. Number one, we are not on truth quests. We are on happiness quests, which is why one of the modern maxims is just do whatever makes you happiest. We don't say do whatever is the truth. We say do whatever makes you the most happy. And in a secular world devoid of God, where we eliminate the transcendent and eternal life or anything like that, really the, the philosophy that really motivates us is YOLO. You only get to live once. And so what our attitude then is to squeeze as many hedonistic, pleasurable experience, experiences into this brief life that we can. The only problem with this mindset is when this unwelcome guest called suffering and trials come into our way, it destroys our meaning in life. It doesn't make us happy anymore. And so it's a very precarious way of living life. And so if you turn to the first page of your bulletin, there's a quote I want to read to you from Tim Keller's book on suffering. And Keller says, contemporary people think life is all about finding happiness. We decide what conditions will make us happy, and then we work to bring those conditions about. To live for happiness means that you are trying to get something out of life. But when suffering comes along, it takes the conditions for happiness away. And so suffering destroys all your reason uh, to keep on living. And so if the main goal of your life is simply to be very happy, Again, it's a very precarious way of living life just because suffering comes whenever it wants to unexpectedly. But there's a second thing that we see from this class at Yale. Not only are we on happy quests, not truth quests, not only are we on happy quests, but here's the second thing. We also misidentify what we think will make us the happiest. How else do you explain the fact that 1,200 students are taking this class? If we were able to rightly identify what would make us happy, nobody would be taking this class. The fact that this many students are taking this class means that we misidentify what can actually make us happy, whether it's you know, romantic relationship, career, kids, family, etc. We're not really good at hitting the mark. In Lord of the Rings, there's this character named Gollum. And Gollum is this creature that discovers this powerful ring that he calls his precious. 
the only thing is that Gollum thinks that this ring is going to meet all of his needs, but the longer he holds onto this ring, the more this ring actually poisons his soul. And the point is this, when we misidentify what we think will actually make us happy, it can actually wind up poisoning our souls. And the whole point of Christianity is that the only thing that can truly satisfy us and give us a joy and the happiness that we want, even in the midst of suffering, is God himself. He is the only one that can give us the lasting joy uh, that we want. And so if you take a look with me at verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 98, there is a declaration of joy. And in verses 1 to 3, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. If you take a look with me at verse 3 one more time, it says that he, God, has remembered his love and his faithfulness to us. Uh, For the past two weeks, Hannah and I have been frantically searching for our passports Uh, because we lost them. Uh, We put them so safely away that we weren't able to find them. We forgot where we put them. To remember something means to safely store something away and then to draw it out. To forget something means you don't know where you put it and therefore you're not able to bring it out. This verse says that God remembers his love and his faithfulness. In other words, he has put it safely away, his love and faithfulness, and he brings his love and faithfulness out to us even in the midst of the cursed world that we live in. And the shape of his love and his faithfulness is a cross. In Galatians 3, it says, cursed is anyone who is hung on a cross. You know what's so interesting about that verse? Uh, when, 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 you know, Jesus was experiencing sort of hostility from his own people, uh, in Jewish law, it was legal to stone someone to death. It was illegal to crucify someone. And so here's the question. Why don't they just stone him to death? He's going to die whether he gets crucified or stoned. So what's the difference when the end goal is still the same? Why go the extra lengths of going to court uh, and having the Romans actually crucify him? It's because in God's plan of redemption for humanity, he wanted Jesus to be cursed on the cross because on the cross, something magical happens. On the cross, our curse is now reversed because on the cross, Jesus takes our curse in our place so that we get his life, his freedom, and his resurrection. The story of Beauty and the Beast, it doesn't just end with the prince being a beast and the household, you know, the the servants and the guests all being household objects, but the story continues. And there's this inventor named Maurice who's going to this fair to present one of his new inventions that he thinks will give his family the good life. And on the way to the fair, he gets lost in the woods and a pack of wolves begin to chase Maurice. And Maurice seeks refuge in that same palace that the enchantress did. And Maurice goes into the palace only to discover, you know, talking teapots and clocks and stuff like that and a 
beast. And the beast thinks that Maurice came into his palace to simply stare at him. And the beast is so infuriated that he locks Maurice up in his palace. Now, Maurice's daughter is a character named Belle. And when she discovers that her, uh, her, her father is missing, she goes to look after her father, Maurice, and she finds that he is in this palace. And so when she meets the beast, she negotiates something with him. And she basically says to him, I will be your slave, I will be your prisoner if you set my father free. And you know how the story goes. He says, okay, they fall in love, the curse is broken, the spell is broken, the curse is reversed, and this, this beast turns into a prince, and, and the candlesticks and clocks, their humanity is restored, and the point of this story is, is there a love that is powerful enough to break the curse? And Christianity would say there is. That Christianity is not just a fairy tale, but it is the truest of all tales. And it is about the love and faithfulness that God has for us, where Jesus exchanges himself for us so that we would be set free from the curse of sin. Now here's the next question then. If we're set free from the curse of sin and the curse has been reversed, then why do I still sin? Why is this world still broken and so hard and why is life so frustrating and so difficult? And the reason for that is because on the one hand, the curse has been reversed, but it is a two-step process. Psalm 98, Enjoy to the World, is actually a song about Jesus' second coming, not his first. That's why Psalm 98 is a foretaste of the future. It says, all the, uh, all the mountains and the rivers will clap their hands. Well, they clearly don't right now. We still face tsunamis, earthquakes, natural disasters. Uh, there isn't as much joy in the world as, as, we, as there ought to be if Jesus has already come. And so the point of this is that the eradication of the curse in many ways is a two-step process. So think about it like this. Uh, a preaching professor at my seminary once said, if you were to go to a farm and cut the head off of a chicken, on the one hand, the chicken is dead. On the other hand, the chicken is still flapping its arms around. And in many ways, this is what happened on the cross to death. Jesus cuts the head off of death. And yet the effects of sin, it's still flapping its arms, which is why one day we will die as well. So we still feel the curse and the effects of sin, but he is coming one day to eradicate it all. So here's the next question then. Why is it a two-step process? Why can't it just be a one-step process? You know, one of the best explanations for, for this two-step process is from Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And in this very thick book, uh, there is a character named Ivan who abandons his faith because of the theodicy issue of God suffering and evil. But Ivan does say something that is just really, really brilliant, even though he has abandoned his faith. And it's the final quote I want to read to you. And Ivan says, I believe like a child. This is Dostoevsky, so it's going to require a little deep thinking. But Ivan says, I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, that in the world's finale, 
at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all our hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, of the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood that they've shed, and it will, it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify what has happened. Now you might be thinking, what in the world could justify God making a world knowing that one day it's going to be cursed? Now that is a very, very deep question uh, that is gonna require a lot more time than just this, but let me give one very simple answer. You know, mountain climbers, when mountain climbers want to summit a mountain, they could easily just take a helicopter up to the mountain. It'd be a lot more efficient and it'd be a lot easier. But why don't mountain climbers take a helicopter up to the mountain? Why go through the challenge, the test, the suffering of this sort of journey and conquest? It's because through the, through the challenge and through the test of climbing this mountain that their character is deepened, their resolve is deepened, their gravitas is really, really formed. They know who they are, what they're made of. It sort of, this experience sort of transforms them. And similarly, as we go through our lives, seemingly like an uphill battle, as we face trials and struggles and tests and challenges and the harshness and difficulties of life, there is something about this journey that does something to us that transforms us to be more God-like than had we not gone through uh, this experience. Frodo would have never been Frodo had he not left the Shire and gone on that adventure. Dorothy would have never been Dorothy if she didn't leave Kansas and experience the tests and challenges of living in Oz. And similarly, we will never be God-like unless we experience the challenge uh, and the difficulties in life. For those of you who are going through difficulties right now, I do want you to remember the words of Jesus himself when he said, be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. We cannot think about God's first coming without simultaneously thinking about his second coming when the eradication of the curse uh, will finally, finally happen. And when we think about the fact that he's coming again, we can not only have happiness, but we can have joy. Happiness is contingent upon your happenings or your happenstance. It's very circumstantial. But joy is something that you can have irrespective of your circumstances in life. And I'll close with this. Uh, Isaac Watts, to come back to him, he wrote Joy to the World and all the other 750 hymns because he was uninspired by the music. But did you know that in the Bible, there are a lot of new songs that are constantly being written and sung? And the reason why in the Bible we see new songs being written is because at that moment, God did something very inspiring and saving in a miraculous way. So for example, when the, when the Israelites crossed the Red Sea and were liberated from their bondage in Israel, what do they do? They sing a song. When Mary finds out that she's pregnant, what does she do? She sings a song. And I would say that we on this side of the cross have more reason to sing than anyone else because God has done something miraculous and saving and it was by sending his son on the cross to die for us. We above all people have something to sing about and it seems to me that our broken world could use some of that. Let's pray together. Lord, we, uh, 
We are so thankful that um, the curse has been reversed and while the effects of sin still linger, uh, we are grateful that one day uh, it will all be eradicated. We are so thankful for the hope that we have in you. We are so thankful that you are yet coming again. And while there was no room for you at the inn when you were first born, it is my prayer that we would make room for you in our hearts and that we would make a home for you in our hearts as well. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.